Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. ...of our third Saturday night of the month speaker meeting that we've started here, and uh, our favorite speaker is here tonight, and his name is Adam T. from Los Angeles. My name's Adam. I'm an alcoholic. I want to first thank you for inviting me to come talk tonight. It's always an honor and a privilege to be asked to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous. Ultimately, it's a responsibility to give back what was so freely given to me. Uh, Thank you, Marcus, for your talk. Uh, Happy birthday. Welcome to anybody that's new. You know, if you're trying AA one more time, if you don't want to be here tonight, you know, if you don't think this will work for you, if you think this is all a big misunderstanding, you know. Well, I mean, I didn't get to AA because I had a bad weekend, you know. I had a couple of bad decades. And uh, for me, like a lot of us, this became a matter of life and death. I, I live in Southern California. Um, I'm sure they do it here. We give chips for like everything, 30, 60, 90 days, six months, nine months. And, you know, in our groups, we always have a perpetual chip taker. And, 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 and I, I stood up in AA, if you're new, for 17 years. I mean, it, it was horrific. I had so many chips and key tags, I, I couldn't play poker with them. It was awful. I remember one secretary saying, give them back. You know, and I did that walk of shame over and over and over again. And, you know, looking back at that, what I would do is I would go into your head and look back at myself and I would think, what a loser. Why can't you get this? What's wrong with you? And I, I think that that judgment kept me out of Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time. And I thank God for the unconditional love of the old timers in Alcoholics Anonymous who said stuff to me like, you know what, don't even bother taking chips. Just sit in the back. Shut up. In a loving way, though, you know. But they also made it really clear to me that if and when I was ready, that the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous would always be open for me. And if you're new, I hope that if you take anything away from this meeting tonight, that for me, Alcoholics Anonymous was the closest thing to unconditional love that a drunk like me would ever experience. No matter how many lives I destroyed, how many jobs I lost, how many hearts I broke, Alcoholics Anonymous has consistently been there for a drunk like me. And I will be forever grateful for that. And, you know, eventually there was so much guilt and shame about being, you know, this perpetual newcomer that uh, I started coming to meetings drunk. Now, the interesting thing about AA is if you see a guy drunk in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting these days, people say stuff like, oh my gosh, what's he doing here? I mean, mean, think about it. With the event of treatment, this multi-million dollar empire that kind of swoops us up in our most desperate moments, you know, throws us into yoga class. Right? Craft hour. Nature walks. But what I would do, I'd go to 7-Eleven, get a big gulp cup, I'd fill it up with liquor, put a little Coca-Cola on top. Then I'd cruise into like the late night 11 p.m. Hollywood AA meeting. Do some of my best sharing. (laughs) I know, they didn't think it was funny. No one was laughing. 
You know, and then I started going through treatment centers. By the way, you know what all the treatment centers and religions have in common? They all send their drunks to us. Right? So I'm going through treatment center after treatment center after treatment center. By the time I finally got sober, I'd gone through treatment 28 times. Not 28 days like the movie. This isn't Hollywood. 28 consecutive times. And I, I wore that like a badge of honor. I thought that's what made me an alcoholic. And I, I remember telling my sponsor, hey, I went through treatment 28 times. I was hoping that would like get rid of the guy, you know, loser. Go find someone that's willing. And he looks me right in the eye and he says, you know, Adam, that doesn't make you an alcoholic. And I thought, you're kidding. He says, no, it means you paid half a million dollars for a big book. <laughs> I didn't think that was funny either. I'm not going to start citing and quoting pages tonight out of the big book. But page 101 of the big book says any scheme that attempts to shield the alcoholic from temptation is doomed to failure. See, treatment was a great place to fatten me up for another run, but treatment never solved the problem. And for me as an alcoholic, like a lot of us, I always thought the problem was alcohol. That's all I ever heard was stop drinking. Everyone told me, just stop drinking. And I always thought the problem was alcohol. And I remember a guy saying to me, you know, Adam, if alcohol's your problem, that drink, that shot glass, that 12-pack, if that's your problem, you're probably not an alcoholic. And then in the very next breath, he said to me, and if you are in fact an alcoholic, the type that's described in the doctor's opinion in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, your problem isn't alcohol. And you know what? It took me another decade to understand what that guy was trying to tell me. Because for me, like a lot of us, it was obvious I couldn't live with booze. Everyone could see I couldn't live with alcohol. From, from the time I was in, in eighth grade, I'm in middle school. I'm already peeing in my pants, drooling on my desk, passed out under the bleachers. My nickname in eighth grade was Space Cadet. I couldn't find homeroom. You know what I mean? People are picking colleges, I'm picking rehabs. Most likely to overdose. Everyone could see I can't live with alcohol. But see, alcoholism comes in people. It doesn't come in bottles. And the greater aspect of this spiritual disease for me, centering in my mind, is the very simple fact that a drunk like me can't live without alcohol. Not successfully, not happily. And in very much the sense of the word alcoholic, what it really means for me to be an alcoholic is that I have a mind that keeps taking me back to booze. I have this mind that continues to lead me back to alcohol. It's almost like my default program. You know, it's funny because I sponsored this guy. He's a computer programmer. And he was so quick to point out that the definition of a program, if you look it up, is a sequential set of instructions that brings about a result. You know, what do you get? when you get a corrupted file on a computer, what do you do? You put in a recovery disk, right? It restores it to an earlier point in the process. You know, then he tells me that 10 and 11 are like the viral scan. <laughs> but see, the problem with me is I sat in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous thinking that it was miraculously going to come up through the chair. And a friend of mine said, you know, Adam, if you sit in a chicken coop for 20 years, guess what? You won't become a chicken. That the fellowship may be equally as important as the program, like we say, principles before personalities, but I had to come to terms with the fact that for me, I had to start taking actions in Alcoholics Anonymous besides just sitting in the rooms. The fellowship was just one part of it. And, you know, what I saw is that I have a defiant mind by nature. 
The thing with me is that I will argue with anybody about anything at any time. You tell me it's black, I'll tell you it's white. You tell me it's big, I'll tell you it's small. You tell me to go left, I'll go right with an attitude. Right? And then I'll blame you for eternity. That's why we say denial is an acronym. It stands for don't even notice I am lying. Think about it. You could tell an alcoholic, but you can't tell him much. Oh, you don't believe it? Try sponsoring somebody. But what that really means for me is that you can lead me into the gates of hell, but you can't push me into heaven. And when we talk about the traditions in Alcoholics Anonymous, what I had to really start to understand is what attraction rather than promotion really means. And how important, like Patrick and I were talking about, the traditions are really the glue that binds us together. It is the traditions that are, are responsible for the unity in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, you want to see some drama, get between an alcoholic and a drink. When Alcoholics Anonymous becomes the thing that's saving my life, then I start to really respect the thing that's saving my life. Think about it. One of us doesn't work the steps, one of us dies. We don't work the 12 traditions, we all die. You know, the steps stop me from committing suicide. If you haven't noticed, the traditions stop us from committing homicide, right? You don't believe it, get involved in a committee. But eventually I started to really understand that. And what happened to me is I got to one more treatment center. I was 120 pounds. I was dying of alcoholism. I was dirty. I stunk like urine. I looked like I just got out of a concentration camp. You know, a vision for you. And I'm sitting there in this detox circle, and I've let everybody down one more time. I'm, You know, I'm in my nightgown with my ass hanging out. And, of course, there's a speaker. And I'm judging the speaker, right? We're the only people that could be on the curb and look down at the world, right? I got two speeds, grandiose and comatose. And this woman is on her H&I panel. We have a committee in Los Angeles called Hospitals and Institutions. It brings meetings into prisons and detoxes, hospitals, anywhere where clients, inmates, or patients can't get to meetings. H&I, and I'm sure you have an equivalent of that called Corrections, that uh, probably has the lowest relapse rate in all of recovery. And, you know, this woman is doing her AA talk, and at the end of her talk, she looks us all up and down, and she says, if I could give you all the gift of recovery, I wouldn't do it. And I looked at her, and I looked at the guy next to me, and I said, what a bitch. <laughs> but then she said something that would later change my life. She said, the reason I wouldn't give you the gift of recovery is because I wouldn't rob you of the journey. And see, if you're new all of these years later, I understand that that journey to recovery, just like that journey to surrender, that each and every alcoholic has to walk is personal. And if you're new, we can't give you that gift of desperation. It's a great acronym for God. But my experience shows me as an alcoholic that until I got to that place in my life where my head couldn't get enough and my body couldn't take anymore, I really didn't understand what it meant to be an alcoholic. Because when my head can't get enough and my body can't take anymore, God means something totally different to a drunk like me. It means grow or die. 
Then I understand what it means to drink against my will. Then I know what it means to break every single promise in my life. I'm going to show up for work on Monday. I'm going to bring my paycheck home. I'll be there for you. And consistently and forever break every one of those promises. You know, if you're new, by the way, we're the only people that want a reward because we ran out of a burning building. You know, if you feel like you gave up your big Saturday night to hang out with us, if you're feeling heroic, this is the only place on God's earth where they'll applause because you came in to save your own life. You know, I tell people, if you're sitting in AA thinking about drinking, that beats the heck out of being in a bar tonight thinking about getting sober. You know, so I, I got to this place where when I walked out of that last treatment center, one of the guys that was running the detox said to me, Adam, why don't you come back next week and tell everybody in detox how you stayed sober a whole week? And for the next seven years, I sat in my car in L.A. traffic for three hours from one side of the county to the other to tell those guys in detox how I made it one more week. And somehow that simple idea of reaching back in my community and helping another drunk turned into this thing for me that that that, that was freedom. And I, if you're new, I wish I could give you that. I wish I could give you that gift of desperation because I think that a lot of times when we talk about what the gift is in Alcoholics Anonymous, for me that gift seemed to be willingness. It's almost like the disease killed me every day and it wouldn't bury me. And I got to a place where I knew that I was just going to exist like that. I mean, being a newcomer for 17 years, it's kind of like being in purgatory. It was horrific. And I know that there's people here that have experienced the same thing. Um, I know a lot of guys that go to York Street down the street here. Part of my sponsorship lineage is connected to Don Pritz and Gary Brown. It's like three or four generations back to Bill Wilson. And I am so lucky that I got around a group of, of people that were active in AA that really kind of turned the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous into questions. You know, and asked me if I could stay stopped on my own. If I could stop without a spiritual experience. If I was bodily and mentally different from my fellows. And as I really started to answer those questions in my life, I saw the hopelessness of alcoholism. Because for me as a drunk, hope doesn't matter until I become hopeless. Like, I could write all day long on step one. Until I've beaten down that liquor store door at 5.59 a.m. over and over and over again. Or paid the clerk at 7-Eleven $100 for a six-pack at 2 in the morning. Or driven all the way to Mexico to get at the bar. Or done all those despicable, diabolical, disgusting things that many of us do on that journey to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, you think writing about step one is going to help me? I had to have an experience with alcohol. Now, I do a lot of H&I. I I should write. I'm an alumni from everywhere. And and one of the panels that, that I've had for a number of years is up at the VA in West L.A. And, you know, you get into the Veterans Administration, and, you know, they have a alcohol treatment program there and you know you get into a room full of soldiers and they ask you to pick a topic so I pick surrender right and one of the greatest illustrations of surrender I'd ever heard came out of one of those 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 panels I mean you ever watch a soldier surrender like on CNN and you might want to relate this to alcohol if you're new you'll see the soldier take the rifle very slowly lay it on the ground sit down on the side of the road 
wait for someone to tell them what to do, right? I mean, when you got 40 AK-47s pointed at your head, you don't throw down the gun with an attitude. I always tell that to the court card people. You know, you're not sitting on the side of the road looking back at the gun, because if you do, someone's going to shoot you. And I look it back at my relationship with alcohol, and it's exactly the same. Am I looking back at alcohol? Is that the euphoric recall? Because for me as an alcoholic, it's like I'm in the high school gym 20 years later. The band's gone, the girls are gone, the lights are out, and I'm in this dark, cold room by myself saying, where's the party? That's the euphoric recall, the peculiar mental twist, the lurking reservation that precedes the first drink. It's almost like life has its moments, and for those very moments, I will give my life to recapture and recreate the magic that I once found in booze. And my experience is that unless I can find that sense of comfort and ease that I'm seeking from alcohol through this process, there's no way I'm going to stay here. If you take booze away from a drunk like me, you got to give me something better. And I believe in many ways that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is always about. It's been about for me. I mean, there's a guy by the name of Dr. Harry Tebow. He's one of the contributing members to some of our original literature. And you can look him up on the Internet. And he talks about the difference between compliance and surrender. And, you know, I've been in compliance with AA for years, doing it for sober living, doing it for the judicial system, doing it for the parole department, doing it for DCSF. Where I live on the west side of L.A., they do it for the trust fund. You know, but see, that concept of surrender, very much like that soldier that lays down that rifle, it's unconditional. There was no more condition on that surrender. You know, and everyone says, oh, my worst day sober is better than my best day drinking. And we're all like, really? But you know what I think? My worst day sober is better than my last day drinking. And that is the point of reference that I must go back to. Because I continue to look back at when it works over and over again. And for me, that'll destroy me. Uh, there was a big difference for me between the act of surrender that got me into AA as a newcomer over and over and over again and the state of surrender that's keeping the old-timers here. And you know what? It, it sounds like semantics, but it's a completely different concept. It's kind of like watching a swan glide across a pond of still water. It's so beautiful. So effortless. So graceful. But you know what that swan's doing under the water? He's paddling like hell. And if you're new, we have a chapter in the big book, Into Action. Have you noticed there's no chapter, Into Feelings? I know the therapists hate it when I say that. And there's no chapter, Into Thinking. Right? We ought to have a chapter, Into Whining, right? From the podium. At the noon meeting. I'm like, dude, get a job. And for me, like a lot of us, I became willing to take actions in Alcoholics Anonymous that I didn't believe in. It was the most pivotal moment in my life when I became willing to take actions that I didn't believe in. I mean, there's a therapy out there called cognitive behavioral therapy, right? It's expensive. In AA, it's one sentence. You can't think your way into right living, but you can live your way into right thinking. 
And, you know, through good sponsorship and the three legacies of Alcoholics Anonymous, I started to see how those actions would change my life. That triangle, recovery, unity, and service, for me, translates into contribute, belong, and learn. It's just that simple. Contributing is service. It makes me feel needed. Belonging is unity. It makes me feel wanted. And to uncover, discover, and discard the things that are blocking me, I start to feel loved. And it's just that simple. It's almost like I can't separate cause from effect. It's like putting a weight pile in the middle of the room and lifting weights every day. If I do it every day, I become strong. The same thing with spiritual exercises. The more that I take these exercises in Alcoholics Anonymous, regardless of my thinking or my feelings, eventually those things change as a result of taking action. And for some reason, that was, that was the thing that brought about the change in me. And, um, you know, because, you know, you go to treatment a lot of times. I got way off into this. I mean, in treatment, we speak a foreign language. You know what it's called, right? It's called victimese. I don't understand how the drink bone connects to the jail bone. Kind of like I met her in rehab. I can't believe she drank. Sound familiar? I knew he was a crackhead. I can't believe he robbed my house. And the big book talks about how I make decisions based on self that later leave me in a position to be hurt. And you know what? I was not able to connect those dots until I started writing inventory. I had to take the actions outlined in steps four through nine consistently until I started to see that change. You know, a friend of mine said continuing to do inventory in the 10th step is kind of like going to an ATM machine. You go to the ATM machine, what do you do? You, you put in the card, you put in the code, you take your money, right? You put in the card, you put in the code, you take your money. And after a while, you're like, I get it. Why do I need to keep doing this? And my friend said, you may get it, but what's going on behind the wall? And I said, my goodness, the account's being debited. And that seemed to be the phenomenon of staying in the steps is all of a sudden, I started to become separated from the emotions that own me. It's almost like where there's hysterics, there's historics. And through this process, I started to see the things that were driving me, driven by selfishness, by self-centered fear. You know, normal people seem to be intellect over emotion. They think, they process, and they act. I'm exactly the opposite. I'm emotion over intellect. I act, process, and think. Oops, 10th step. Think about it. We're the only people that burn bridges ahead of us. Okay, there are a couple alcoholics here, right? And unless I can experience an entire psychic change, I can't get free. Alcoholism is the only prison where the key's inside. And until I really understood that concept, and I'm going to say it again later, that I am trying to solve a spiritual problem with a physical solution, I will never get free of that spiritual prison. Part of the word spiritual is ritual. And just like that weight pile, that idea of taking actions that I don't believe in, coming to believe in a power other than myself, I can't seem to fix the problem with the head that got me here. For me, fear won't keep me sober. I don't know about you guys, but getting a third strike, living on the street, being homeless, losing my big career, throwing away my family. I don't know about you, but did scared straight work for you guys? went right over my head. Now, the big book talks about the problem drinker and illustrates the problem drinker as someone that can stop or moderate given sufficient reason, right? 
Huge difference between a problem drinker and a real alcoholic. Think about it. You get a problem drinker and a real alcoholic in a jail cell, like a drunk tank for drunk driving, you get two completely different philosophies going on. Get the problem drinker over here on one side of the cell thinking, why did I drink so much last night? I knew I shouldn't have drank so much. Real alcoholics over here on the other side of the cell thinking, why did I take the 25? <laughs> oh, the court card people never laugh at that. Right? Problem drinker's wife says, honey, if you don't stop drinking, I'm leaving you. Problem drinker cleans up his act, doesn't drink in the house, gets a little visine. Now, if my woman says, honey, if you don't stop drinking, I'm leaving you. You know what I'm thinking, right? I'm thinking about single life. And my experience with alcohol is exactly the same. When we talk about to concede to our innermost self that we're alcoholic, the word concede means to surrender with a fight. Doesn't every drunk defend their right to drink? And if anything got in the way of booze, it was out of my life. I mean, alcohol completed me. It had me from hello. Alcohol was the love of my life. You think I'm going to let go of the love of my life without a fight? I can't even let go of a bad relationship. Anything got in the way of booze, it was out of my life. And if you're new, my experience with Alcoholics Anonymous is identical. If anything gets in the way of AA, it's out of my life. A woman, I don't care how much she loves me, how great she makes me look, how good she makes me feel. I remember the first time I said that in an AA meeting, there she was in the back of the room. She's like, sweetie, you don't look like an alcoholic. Oh my gosh, why do you got to go to all those meetings, honey? Oh, you're not speaking again. It's the weekend. Then she tells me, you know that AA program? It's getting in the way of our relationship. So a couple months later, it's, it's the big night. You know, we've been dating a couple months. It's the big night. It's meet the parents night, right? So I'm at her parents' house, suit and tie. Out comes the exotic wine, head of the table. You know, everyone's toasting. She's like, honey, honey, you can have one glass of wine. It's just a glass of wine, sweetie. Come on, it's Thanksgiving, honey. It's natural wine. <laughs> you did read the book. Okay, four more rehabs for me. And she came to detox with a get well card. I know, I think I got five cards from that one. No offense, I love al on family groups. I come from a long line of alcoholics and suicide on both sides. But for that girl, a slip was ten minutes of compassion. I tried to send her to Codependence Anonymous. She wouldn't go. You know why? She didn't have anyone to go with. <laughs> Thank God for Al-Anon. You know, that, that whole thing about I, I didn't cause it, I can't cure it. I can't control it. The idea of minding my own business and having some business to mind. As an alcoholic, being involved with an alcoholic family, it became so evident to me that I needed to understand that the genetics loads the gun, that his function pulls the trigger. You know how many Al-Anons it takes to screw in a light bulb? None. The Al-Anon detaches and lets it screw itself. <laughs> See how perfect that is? But I can't do that without guidance, without direction, especially when it's someone you love. 
the hardest thing for me to do. I mean, I sponsor guys that pay more in taxes than I earn all year. They have these huge careers and these little tiny programs. I've never seen one of them stand the test of time here. What do I do for a living? I stay sober. What do I do for money? That's over there. See, puke smells the same in a Mercedes. And if I get those two things mixed up, I'm back in an emergency room. I get those two things mixed up, I'm back in handcuffs. Or I get a double header, I'm handcuffed to a gurney in an emergency room. But my experience, again, is that anything I put in front of this thing, for me, has been removed from my life. Drunk or so. And it's critical as an alcoholic that eventually I start to see that simple concept. You know, self-knowledge won't fix me. I mean, I've had every relapse prevention class known to man. I can't make it past the liquor store. You know, and I'm back in, in class, you know, learning about my triggers in my nightgown. I'm like, counselor, 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 waking up's a trigger for me. I'm awake. It's like, sir, will you please go back to your dorm? And I'm, I'm on skid row again, drunk, reciting chapter five out of the big book. And I've got a head full of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've got a belly full of booze, and I'm separate, different, and alone, like Marcus said, one more time. And if you think that's painful, you know what could actually be worse than that? Being in this room tonight, being a real alcoholic, an alcoholic of my type, and not working at 12 steps, it could be worse. Coming to meetings late, leaving early, not having commitments, not being of service, not having a sponsor, not having this friendly direction, as we say. You got no anesthetic. It could be more painful. That's why I always say, you know, we have these milestones, like 30, 60, 90 days, like we were talking about. We should have a moment of recognition for the person in their last 30 days. Think about it. You can always spot them. Just ask them how they're doing. I'm fine. I'm like, really? Why don't you tell your face that? (laughs) See, but that's the tragedy. That's the tragedy of Alcoholics Anonymous, is that if you want to hide something from a newcomer, you know where you put it, right? Stick it in the big book. They'll never find it. There's only one thing people like us do in moderation. You know what it is, right? The steps. See, alcoholism is the only disease that, when treated, will actually leave the sufferer in a better position than if they never had the disease. And I could never believe that until I started doing the work in AA. As long as I was on the outside looking in, it was even more painful. Because for me as an alcoholic, unless I really understand what the problem is, the solution's not going to work. And I always thought the problem was booze. But the problem for me, the greater aspect of this problem, is when a guy like me stops drinking. See, a lot of people stop drinking, the outsides get better, the insides get better. My experience with alcoholism is when I stop drinking, the outsides get better, but the insides get worse. And the longest bridge that I will ever cross, the longest journey that I will ever walk as an alcoholic, is that little tiny hyphen between the first and second half of step one. And what that really means is I've got a body that can't process alcohol, 
But more importantly, I have a mind that can't process reality. And for many, many years I thought, because I drink, therefore my life is unmanageable. That's like looking at the tip of the iceberg and seeing the ruined marriage, the unemployment, the physical ailments, all the destruction, and thinking that that's the problem. That's like telling me that the trigger is on the outside. But see, what Alcoholics Anonymous has continued to show me is that for a drunk like me, the trigger's on the inside. You ever notice when an alcoholic's not having a good day? You know when I'm not having a good day? When I don't get my way. You ever notice we're all like five-year-old kids here with old people's faces? Oh, you don't believe it? Cross one of us. I'll resent your grandkids. The problem with that is I take poison and I hope you die. It's how that manifests. So really for me as an alcoholic, it's the second half of step one that drives this thing. And that's my need to play God. That's my need to be right. My need to sort, compare, judge, and label. It's my severe overreaction to five things. Abandonment, rejection, betrayal, disrespect, and authority. All of that comes out of that fourth column in inventory. And it's all driven by one thing, by fear. This thing called self-reliance. And I think if you're new, the most significant thing that I discovered through doing all of this service and all of these seemingly unrelated things is I got together with one guy and I heard the same thing that a lot of us hear. Three words. Yeah, me too. And that seems to be the identification. It's almost like intimacy is into me, I see. And it was by reaching back and working with another alcoholic that I saw my own fallibility, my own humanity, my own defects. You know, anybody remember Gilligan's Island? It's kind of a young crowd, but we were talking about that the other day. Did you ever notice that Gilligan's Island was the seven deadly sins? Think about it. The captain was gluttony. Gilligan was sloth. Marianne was envy. Ginger was lust. Mr. Howe was greed. The professor was pride. If you're new, go to Hulu. But see, I would have killed everyone on the island, but Ginger. And eventually what happens is I put down the drink, I pick up the fork, right? That's gluttony. And then I'm in six and seven on my knees, saying, God, please take this from me. And I put down the fork and I pick up the credit card, right? I'm going to fix what I did with the fork. And then I'm in bankruptcy court on my knees. And then I put down the credit card and I start acting out in the rooms. Can't go to that meeting again. And it's so interesting how there's like, you know, a couple hundred 12-step programs and they're all identical except for the first half of step one. And it's so easy for me to play musical poisons like we were talking about earlier in the first half of step one. And what the literature talks about is for me, when I straighten out spiritually, only then do I straighten out mentally and physically. And that was a product of continuing to process through the steps and then reaching back in my community and helping others. I mean, I'm involved with some groups where they know more about the big book than anyone I've ever seen, and there's no new people. And then there's groups where all they do is service and they never talk about the steps. And it seems like the three legacies of Alcoholics Anonymous are like an equilateral triangle. And when I started to do it all at the same time, I looked back at my life and I thought, my God, how did I ever live like that? How could I have ever lived like that? 
I told my sponsor I had a degree when I came to AA. You know what he said to me? He said, Adam, thermometers have degrees. You know where they stick those? See, at the end of these meetings, we say, keep coming back. It works if you work it. They don't say, keep coming back. It works if you know it. And what I discovered was, is that Alcoholics Anonymous was not an intellectual pursuit. If you're new, you know, I had thought that I would understand and learn some basic ideas here, like principles, and then I would get free of it. And my experience is, it's almost like people ask me why I keep going to meetings. I'm like, why do you keep going to the gas station? Because the shower I took yesterday won't keep me clean today. That point of reference is when Wilson talks about we cannot rest on our laurels. That means I can't stay sober on yesterday's program. It means it's like unplugging a refrigerator. I unplug from a spiritual design for living and I seem to spiritually deteriorate. You know, thinking it through doesn't work for me. I mean, I've had... I just, I just, I just thinking it through won't work. You know, and I had to get to a place where I, I started to understand those simple concepts. You know, one of the things my sponsor said to me, he said, Adam, what do you want from AA? And I said, you know, I grew up in Malibu. I want a yacht and a Learjet. And you know what he said to me? He said, if you work steps four through nine and you consistently live in 10, 11, and 12, what you'll get, right? Because I'm a taker. I want to get something. He says, what you'll get is a quiet mind and a loving heart. And I looked at him and I thought, what do I want that for? But looking back at it, you know, Wilson talks about the grouch and the brainstorm. What's the opposite of a quiet mind? For me, it was a mind that won't shut up. It's a mind that's up at three in the morning telling me I'm a loser. You know that job you got, they're going to do the background check on you. It's up five minutes before me every day saying, those people in AA don't care about you. And the opposite of a loving heart is a vindictive heart. It's a prejudiced heart. It's a resentful heart. And for me, all of my life, I was crucified between these two thieves, yesterday and tomorrow. And yesterday I have guilt, shame, and remorse, and tomorrow I have fear, anxiety, and worry. And it seems like the product of continuing to take inventory is I get to a place where I'm at peace. It's almost like our spirits are like a body of water. When they're perfectly still, they best reflect the heavens. I know how to get there with a bottle of liquor. But unless I can find that sense of comfort and ease that I'm seeking from alcohol through this process, there's no way I'm going to stay here. You know, I, I look back at my experience with Alcoholics Anonymous and with booze, and if someone did to me what I did to myself, I hate to say it, but I would have killed them. If someone did to me what I did to others, I would have killed them. And then I come in these rooms and you want me to pray to God? I didn't want God to find out where I was. I'd become bankrupt in those three basic areas of my life. And, you know, really looking back at the steps, the steps recreate those three relationships. Steps one through three recreate and develop a relationship with God. Four through seven recreate and develop a relationship with self. Eight and nine recreate and develop a relationship with others. Ten maintains my relationship with self. Eleven maintains my relationship with God. And 12 through service maintains, develops, and grows my relationship with others. So coming out of the steps, I'm able to live in harmony in those simple relationships. There was a great spiritual teacher. He was asked, what's the most important thing of all your teachings? What did he say? Love God with all thy heart. Love thy neighbor as thyself. It's almost like those relationships are built right into the steps. 
And like, you know, a lot of us say, if, if you're an alcoholic and, and, and God scares you out of these rooms, don't worry about it. Booze will scare you back in. I think the one of the strongest principles in my life, and a principle is a fundamental belief that I base my life on, is, 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 is kind of like that thing that Einstein said. I would rather live this life pretending there's a God and finding out there isn't than live this life pretending there's no God and finding out there is one. It's just that simple. That simple idea. Like we have this chapter in the book, We Agnostics. Have you noticed if you're new, there's no chapter, We Believers? And through continuing to process through some very simple questions in We Agnostics, I started to see, it's like when they asked Michelangelo, how did you make the Statue of David? Michelangelo said, I never made the Statue of David. I just chipped away everything that wasn't David, and there he was. And that idea of, you know, looking at some of my old ideas about this power. And it really comes down to one thing. God will steer, but God won't row. That's the whole point of that exercise of he's the father, I'm the child, he's the principal, I'm the agent, he's the director, I'm the actor. I start to see that it's really not my definition, but my understanding to that relationship that changed my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's a poem in Notre Dame It says, I sought my God, my God I could not see. I sought my soul, my soul I could not free. I sought my brother and I found all three. And when Wilson talks about nothing ensures immunity from drinking more than intensive work with others, that seemed to be the trick when that guy said to me, why don't you come back next week and tell everybody how you stayed sober a whole week? And that began a journey in Alcoholics Anonymous that I'd been sitting on top of and not even, and I didn't even realize that the steps were kind of like the face of a clock. When you're in 12, you better be in one with someone else. Re-experiencing the phenomenon of craving. Re-experiencing the obsession of mind. Re-experiencing the spiritual malady. Because in reality, you know, we always say the re- grass is greener. You know why the grass is greener over there? It's because they're watering it. And when Bill Wilson came back to Lois and he said to his wife, I'm trying to help all these drunks and none of them want it. But she said, but look at you, Bill. You're on fire about this. You've been sober six months. And that seemed to be the pivotal point for a lot of us. That every single one of us has this opportunity. That's what makes Alcoholics Anonymous grow. I'm sure there's tons of drunks to work with in Denver. You know, and I start to look at what blocked me from helping people. It was this idea, this delusion or dishonesty with myself that I had nothing to offer. It was my selfishness. It was my fear. Like my friend Bill C. He says, how can you possibly give a newcomer worse advice than they're giving themselves already? <laughs> like, how are you going to hurt anybody? This whole thing is based on love and service. It's so simple. It's so simple. That simple idea of reaching back and helping one other drunk change my life. The steps for me break down into four basic ideas. In one through three, I give it up. Four through seven, I clean it up. Eight and nine, I make it up. Ten, eleven, and twelve, I keep it up. 
And as a result of that process, I'm able to navigate around the drama. I'm able to match calamity with serenity. I'm able to stay in some kind of fit spiritual condition. You know, one of the oldest stories in AA, we were talking about it, is about this little five-year-old kid. And this little boy, he wants to play with his dad, and he's, you know, he's very distracting. And his dad's trying to find out a way to occupy this little five-year-old. So what he does is he gets this map of the world. You know, National Geographic, they have those great maps. And he rips this map of the world up into like 50 pieces. And he, he gives it to his son, and he gives the little boy some tape. And he says, what I want you to do, son, is I want you to put this map of the world back together. And when you're done, we'll play. And he's thinking it's going to take the kid an hour. Finally, some relief. Little five-year-old comes back in two minutes. He's got this whole map of the world reassembled. It's all taped back together. It's perfect. The dad says, that's impossible. I'm 50. I couldn't do that. How did you do it, son? And the little boy says, well, dad, on the back of the map of the world, there was a picture of a man. I just put the man back together and the whole world fell into place. I had sat in Alcoholics Anonymous and in and out of those institutions for 17 years, continuing to put the map back together first. I was famous. I could get the girl, the job, the house, and the car all in 90 days. And every time I was back in some facility with a bracelet. If you're new, this seems to be the spiritual technology that rebuilds the man or woman. One through three with God, four through seven with self through inventory, eight and nine with others through amends. And then to maintain, develop, and grow. Ten with self, eleven with God, twelve with others. And for me, like so many of us, the whole world fell into place for me. And, uh, you know, I want to thank you guys so much for inviting me. I wish I had a little longer, but, you know, the, the meeting's over. If you're new, you got a great group here. you got some people that know the steps. Marcus, you were awesome. The, the thing that you said about the things that you had to do in Alcoholics Anonymous became the things that you wanted to do. That is the, the craziest thing. If, if The one thing about this thing is that, like I, I was telling Patrick, it's kind of like you, you polish over here and you shine over there. And all of us talk about that, about having lives beyond our wildest dreams. I could never have imagined the joy and the freedom and the relationships and the love. And I can't really paint that picture. It would be wrong if I did. Because it'll be your journey, it'll be your picture. And I can't rob you of that journey. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.